0: Amen. Thanks. Josh, pray through everybody. Clap again. (laughs) Thanks. Um, So if you didn't hear, Titus 3, where I'm going to be finishing up the book for us. So Titus 3, starting in verse 9. So I have the pleasure of opening up the word and finishing out this series for us. Um, Vince already said it, but my name is Josh Prather. I'm a pastor centrally for Redemption Church. So, what I do is how I try to explain it is oversee our community and global initiatives, which helps equip the church to love the marginalized, vulnerable, and global neighbors. So, if you're thinking refugees, if you're thinking Native Americans, you're thinking communities in poverty, you're thinking global neighbors, whether it's Africa, whether it's Europe, whatever it may be. What does that look like and what takes the shape of that? So I work with all the congregations to try to do that and try to shape the values and philosophy for how we do that. But Arcadia's home. I'm an elder there and I have the privilege to preach there periodically. My wife and I live downtown. I've been a Phoenician for uh, six years now, so I am freezing. I'm, I'm just being honest with you. I, I went to the farmer's market this morning and I saw people in shorts. I don't know what is going on. But I was freezing. I mean, jacket, the whole thing. So I am definitely uh, not made for the cold, let's put it that way. But it's a pleasure to be here um, and be able to preach today. Let me pray for us one more time. We're going to dive right into it. Father, I thank you for this time. God, I just pray for your word. I pray that you would use me as you see fit to communicate your word. God, I pray that uh, the Spirit would move in me and through me, not for my name's sake, but for your name's sake. God, I pray that your church would be one. As you pray, you and us, and us and you, perfectly one, may there be no division in your church. May we act in wisdom, and may you guide us as your faithful people to be witnesses to the people of Flagstaff and beyond. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So you actually get a glimpse of unity and wisdom in Genesis 1 and 2. God establishes his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, that the two are actually one. There's no division between heaven and earth. And in this, you actually see that people are acting in wisdom, and there's actually unity in relationships. In Luke 2.52, it says that Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And what that is is kind of a restoration of Genesis 1 and 2. Jesus becomes a perfect man trying to refer us back to the way the kingdom was supposed to be. In Genesis 1 and 2. Because what you see is when you show up on the scene with Adam and with Eve, you see perfect unity and harmony. You don't see any stirring of division. You don't see any conflict. You don't see any quarreling. You see oneness. You see wholeness. And you see them actually acting in wisdom as God instructed them to do. But if you know the story of the Bible, you see quickly that there's rebellion in God's kingdom. And what was once one in relationships is now divided. And it's not just in relationships, but every facet of God's creation is now broken. But God, in his goodness and in his kindness, doesn't disregard his creation. He doesn't sweep it aside. He embarks on a mission, and he actually chooses a people to be a faithful witness in all the nations. and says, I'm going to choose you to be a vision of unity in the midst of division. A vision of the way things are supposed to be so that people peer in, they look into my people, and they actually see wisdom. They actually see unity. But if you're a part of the series that we just got done with, you see that in the book of Judges, God's people are not always faithful to the calling. They're not always a unified people. Israel is extremely divided. They're not acting in wisdom. And the book of Judges ends with this refrain. In those days, there's no king in Israel. And everyone does what is right in their own eyes. They are not submitting to the kingship of Jesus Christ. And therefore, there is division and there is no wisdom within God's people. So you come to the book of Titus and you see Paul giving Titus sound doctrine. He's giving the church sound doctrine leaders, sound doctrine and it's not just for them to know more it's to shape them as a people so that they will be unified in the midst of a divisive a divided world and be a glimpse to the nations of the way things are supposed to be because the world as we know it you don't have to watch the news too long you don't have to look too long in your neighborhood before you see division And you see people acting foolishly time and time again. And then you look into your own heart and you see it as well. You see that our proclivity, our flinch, is towards division. Our proclivity, our flinch, is towards foolishness. So Paul gives Titus the sound doctrine and says, I want you to give this to your people so that they can be shaped as a people with sound doctrine so that they can act this out in wisdom and actually be a unified people that their conversations can actually spur one another on, stir one another on towards greater love and good deeds. But as we come to the end of this letter, you hear from Paul, and Paul ends almost every single letter this way, and Paul says, but... But there are some, there are some that are within the church that aren't going to adhere to this vision. There are some within the church that are going to hear this, and it's not going to be what they want to follow. And that's what Paul speaks to now. So come with me to the book of Titus, and that's where we're going to pick up. Starting in verse 9 of chapter 3, he says, But, Now, what's he referring to? But is in contrast to something. If you were here last week, I think you taught him this last week, verse 8, you hear that the church is actually created and set apart for good works that Paul doesn't give. I want to say this again. It's so important for the Western church to understand this, that sound doctrine is not just about what you know. It's about what you do. That sound doctrine takes root in life. That it shapes us as a people for the sake of, of good works. And you see this all the way back in Genesis 12, that God sets apart Abraham, he sets apart Israel and says, I am going to bless you as a people so that you might be a blessing. And that's what we learned last week. And Paul is just reaffirming it six times. Paul reaffirms that the church is created for good works. This is a book about sound doctrine manifested, taking life in good works. And that's what we heard last week. And then Paul says, but... But there are some who don't have this vision. But there are some who wouldn't adhere to this. So he says, but avoid. And who's he speaking to? He's speaking specifically here to Titus. He's saying, Titus, you as an elder and a church leader with self-control that comes from God, another word that's constantly there in the book of Titus. Be self-controlled. He says to older men as you're shaping and guiding younger men, be self-controlled. He says it to Titus, qualifications for an elder, be self-controlled. He says it to the ladies as you're discipling younger ladies, be self-controlled. Titus, please avoid these things. Avoid this through self-control. And what does he want you to avoid? Foolishness. Avoid foolishness controversies that are not profitable. He's contrasting once again. I think I just really want us to understand the importance of good works, and we talked about it last week, but we have to say that is what Paul is speaking to. He's saying that when you quarrel, when you're foolish, it takes away from the good works that God designed you to do that God set us us apart as a people to do, that this foolishness is not profitable. In contrast to verse eight, where he says, these things are profitable. And what's he talking about? He's talking about good works. The good works that God has for you is what is profitable. And what I'm about to tell you, Titus, avoid this because it is not profitable. Be wise in the midst of of foolishness and we're going to talk about wisdom in a little bit but you have to be wise do not be foolish and another way to translate foolishness is nonsense is that the conversations that I'm going to talk about here Titus you have to avoid them because they are they're nonsense they're not for the building up of the church they're not for the growing and the thriving of the biblical community they are nonsense they're unprofitable and worthless they have no purpose it's arguing for the sake of arguing just think for a second. Do you know anybody that just argues for the sake of arguing? Just stirring up division? Their purpose for arguing is not to spur one another on towards greater love and good deeds. Their purpose for arguing is not to build up the body of Christ. Their purpose for arguing is not to bring glory to God. Their purpose for arguing is to stir up division. It's arguing for arguing's sake. Or maybe God's speaking to you now and he's saying, That's you. It's you. You're one of those people sometimes that you argue for the sake of arguing, and it's not for the sake of good works that God has for you. Just arguing. And good works are why we were saved, not foolish controversies. But we don't long for good works, and that's the challenge, church, is that still even within us, those of us that are born again, those of us that have believed in verse 80 he says that for those that have believed, let them be devoted to good works. But still, even us that have believed, we're devoted to good works. There's still this, this tendency towards the lust of the flesh, the lust of life. The pride, or the pride of life, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. There's this longing within us still, even though we're born again, to serve ourselves where good works are not for you. They're for God and for your neighbor. And the person that is stirring up division cares for themselves. And sadly, even for those that are in the gospel, those that have believed, sadly, this is often the case with us and we have to fight it like crazy in the grace of Jesus. Rooted in the grace of Jesus, we fight against this tendency to serve ourselves, stirring up controversy that serves us and takes away from the good works that God has for his church. He says these people are stirring up division where they should be, Hebrews ten 24. I've said this a few times, but I think it's just such a beautiful contrast to what the church should be doing and what these people are doing. He says, And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and to good works. Let us consider how to stir one another up. Are your conversations with your spouse? Are your conversations with your neighbor? Are your conversations with your coworkers stirring them on to love and good works? Is that the vision that you have for your conversations? Even if an argument arises in your heart, you're saying, I want them to love better. And I love them. This is for them. I'm having this conversation. It's turned into a heated discussion. There's a bit of an argument. But in my heart, I know this is not for me. This is for them. I am trying to love them. And my hope for them in this conversation is that they would be stirred up to love and to good deeds. Not just to win an argument to win an argument. If you win an argument and you lose a brother, what is the benefit in it? These people are stirring up division. It's not profitable. And the word division here is where we get the word heretic. And the root of the word actually has decision-making in it. And I think this is very interesting because usually we think of heresy, and if you don't know, if you're not familiar with the church, heresy is anything that is not according to sound doctrine. So that's why Paul is writing this. He's trying to root a church in the gospel— in sound doctrine and saying here's what sound doctrine is but i think this is really important that sound doctrine isn't just about what you know it's also about what you do and these people that are teaching what is contrary to sound doctrine is actually having physical literal implications in life they are teaching what is contrary to sound doctrine they're stirring up division and their words are dividing communities their words are dividing marriages their words are dividing the church do not think that your words don't matter they have physical dividing consequences to them and that's what these people are doing they're stirring up controversy and it's not just here's something else I want to say too because i think it's important for us to give Some um, leniency to people that have just come to know Jesus. So all of us remember that. Some of you don't know Jesus. Some of you have just come to know Jesus. Some of you have been walking with Jesus for a long time. And we all can remember, if we've been walking with Jesus, that there's times in life where we have foolish conversations because we're trying to grow in the Lord. You know, and sometimes we make unwise decisions, and that's not this people that are young in their faith that are trying to grow in the Lord and we're trying to disciple them we're trying to walk with them we're trying to guide them in making wiser decisions that's not this This these are people that are willfully purposefully dividing the church making purposeful decisions and Paul calls it heresy he says these people I want you to hear how harsh that is these people are heretics this is the same word you want to know what a heretic is it is someone that is stirring up division, because we see the doctrine they believe, and that's what I think is so critical. They might say that they believe in sound doctrine, but we look at their lives, and we look at them stirring up division, and we say, no, 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 you don't believe sound doctrine, because I see it in your life. If you believed sound doctrine, I would be able to see it, and I would see you trying to build unity in the midst of a divided world, but instead, what I see is you stirring up division. I see gossip. I see slander. I see you dividing and you might say with your words that you believe in sound doctrine, but I look at your life and I see something very contrary to that. And then he says, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Now why? This seems harsh. And once again remember that he's talking to Christian leaders. He's talking to Titus purposefully, now this has implications for all of us, but really talking to Titus, he's saying, Titus, these people, if they're stirring up division, he says, warn them once, warn them twice, and then have nothing more to do with them. Now why? Because this takes away from the mission of the church. This takes away from the mission of the church. As an elder sitting on an elder board in a congregation, I can say from personal experience that I have dealt with this, that I see this. You see this time and time again, is that something is thrown onto the table because someone is being divisive in the congregation. Someone is dividing in the congregation. They're stirring up division in the congregation. And we have to talk about it to what we should be talking about is how we're stirring one another up, how we're loving one another, how we're discipling one another to love and good works, the mission of the church. It's a big deal. It's no minor matter because we only have so much time in the day. Amen? There's only so much time we can put to, to understanding Jesus. There's only so much time we can actually give to loving our neighbor and understanding the biblical text and to take away and to have to give our time to quarreling, to backbiting, to gossip, and to slander. It takes away from the vision of the local church. And Paul says, we can't do this. Titus, after warning them once, and warning them twice, have nothing, more to do, have nothing more to do with it. And it seems, just so you know, it seems like church leadership in this time wouldn't care. It seems harsh in some ways. Because he's saying, hey, after once, after twice, have nothing more to do with them. Walk away from them. But it's so important that we keep good works at the focus. Because that's the focus of this. Paul is coming back and saying, Titus, I'm giving you sound doctrine for the sake of good works. And when people are dividing and they're stirring up controversy, controversies. It's taking away from the good works that I have for you, and it's not what I've planned for you. It's not why I have created and built up the church. Such a person is warped and sinful. Such a person is warped and sinful. Almost all of Paul's letters, I said this before, end with this. So for us to think that these people are not in Redemption Flagstaff, for us to think that these people are not in Redemption Arcadia, would be a disservice to us. That's why we need to pray. We need to be a prayerful people that pray for unity in the church. We need to be people that are, that are on guard against division. We need to be people that are, are peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called sons and daughters of God. Matthew 5, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. We are peacemakers and not dividers because they have always and will always be in the local church. And here's what I want to ask of you is that usually these conversations— And once again, speaking from personal experience, usually these conversations never actually happen. Usually don't warn them once, warn them twice, and then have nothing more to do with them. Largely because after you warn them once, and you have one conversation with them, they walk away. They walk away. Why? Because there's a local church down the road. Because we live in a consumeristic culture where you don't have to have covenant relationships if you don't want to. You don't have to bind together as a community and actually sit under the authority of godly leadership. You're here, I hope, because you say, okay, I trust Anthony, I trust Vince, I trust Redemption Church. I am here, and when I need to, I'm going to submit to their godly leadership and trust them that if they sit down with me and they say, hey, I think you might be trying to divide, you might be stirring up division that you won't leave this local church, and you'd say, okay, God, what are you trying to teach me? How can I grow as a believer? How can I be discipled? disciple? And sadly, church, I'm just being honest, that never, (laughs) that rarely happens. That rarely happens because what happens is you sit down with someone and say, hey, I think you're trying to stir up division. And that person says, well, I'm gone. Because I can just consume a better good and service down the road. A good and service where the leadership doesn't actually challenge me. A good in service where the leadership doesn't actually try to press in, into my life and say, I want you to be more like Jesus. And I'm going to press into it a little bit. And it allows us to just be completely individualistic, whatever serves us best. Whatever serves us best. These people are warped and sinful. And the word warped here actually could be translated as perverted or corrupted. These people are actually perverted. I just want you to hear like, Being a divider in a community is no minor issue. Quarrelling is no minor issue. Allowing your conversations and arguments to talk about what takes away from the good works that God has for the church is no minor issue. It's serious to Paul. These people are warped and sinful. And then Paul goes on to end the letter. I love this. What I like to say is kind of like a human element to the letter, which I think is kind of cool. It, It shows that Paul is not just some church father that is void of relationship, is void of real life, Paul ends the letter like a lot of us would end the letter, by just saying, hey, I want you to write to this person, talk to this person, tell this person this. I do think there's some really important biblical implications to it, especially when it says, I'm going to stay here for the winter. I think that's kind of a strategic place for Paul to hunker down for the winter in a very strategic part of the world, make disciples, get the church ready, fuel the church, and be ready for mission when the winter ends. But it is just kind of a human element to the church. But you see here, there's kind of a good work sandwich that happens. He says, towards the end of the letter, he says, and let them be, devote themselves to good works. And this is sandwiching in between verse 8. So he's saying, devote yourself to good works. And then he goes on, here's the people that you have to watch for, Titus. All, these people are going to do these things. Here's what they're going to say. Here's what they're going to do. Here's what they're going to be about. And then once again, I just want to remind you, I've already said it five times by now. In a very short letter, Paul's already said it five times that we need to be about good works. And one more time, I'm going to say it. And let them be devoted to good works. But it's hard. People need to see it. I think about Peter coming to the tomb and saying, I need to see this. I need to see what this looks like. I need to go to Jesus because I can't believe he's resurrected from the dead. Thomas saying, I'm doubting. I need to see. I need to see these good works. I need to see unity actually in the flesh. What does this actually look like? And this doesn't mean that there's not diversity. And here's a big point I want us to take away is when you are coming together as a church— You're coming together from different backgrounds, different ethnicities. If you want to be a multi-generational, multi-ethnic church, there is going to be challenging conversations because when you bring, bring in all these different cultures, it'll naturally lend itself towards division without the gospel. It'll naturally move that way if we don't put Jesus in the center of it and say, Jesus is going to be the unifying factor for this church. You should look to your right, look to your left. You should look across your redemption community sitting across the couch and say, outside of the gospel, ah, we probably wouldn't be friends. I probably wouldn't be hanging out. If it wasn't for Jesus to unify us, I don't know why we would be together. But that's challenging. That's hard. And we need Jesus for that. But church... That is the witness to the world. That's what Paul is trying to say, is that it's natural for people to stir up division. It's natural for people to quarrel. It's natural for people to hang out with people that are just like them so they never have to get into challenging conversations. That's natural. Natural human tendency to do that, but I'm calling you to something else. I'm calling you to unity in the midst of diversity, not division. I'm calling you to be one. And look to your brother or sister next to you and say, I love you because Jesus. We are one in the gospel. And it is a witness to redemption flagstaff. They peer into this room and they should see a bunch of people walking in the doors every Sunday. And they say, how are those people spending time with one another? I mean, I just saw this person. He looked like this. I know that person. Wow. And then I see this college student coming in here. I see this person working here. I know this person's background. But all these people are coming together and they're worshiping and they're part of some community that I'm not sure what it is, but I see unity in the midst of real diversity with neighbors that would be so much easier just not to hang out, to hang out with people that are just like you, to go down the road and find the church that fits what you want to consume, the next good and service you want to consume. But that's not what Paul calls us to. And that's not what Jesus calls us to. He calls us to something more I was in the preaching collective a few weeks ago, and Aaron Daly, who's a pastor at Redemption Alhambra, at the very same time, it was funny, at the exact same time, we're reading through this passage, so if you didn't know this preaching collective, if you're not familiar, all the pastors get together that are preaching on a text from all the 10 congregations, if they can, and study the text together, we pray together, and we kind of say, okay, what is the central theme of this text? Where do we see the gospel in this text? So Aaron Daly, pastor at Redemption Alhambra, Was thinking the same exact thing as me as we're sitting there, and he says, "You know, this—I see this all the time. This dividedness within the church. I see it all the time within nonprofits, and in my role as community and global initiatives, and being in the community, being around the world, I see it all the time. I literally—I'm not joking—I saw this three times in the last week, where I sit down with someone that's in a nonprofit, leading a nonprofit." And I say, okay, are you part of a local church? And I say, nah, not really. Not really part of a local church. And I say, why is that? And at the end of it, once you pry into it, they would say, because the church isn't passionate about fill in the blank, whether it's immigration, it's foster care and adoption, it's loving Muslims. It's caring for missions. Whatever it is, there is something that they have filled in this gap to say, I don't need the authority of the local church. I don't need to submit to the local church. I don't need to try to pursue unity. I'm okay with being divided. Good works can divide us as well. I sat down with a gentleman who's been a pastor for a number of years. I mean, he's been a pastor in a local church in Phoenix for a number of years. Now he's leading a nonprofit. And honestly, the nonprofit is doing good work. As I learned more about the nonprofit and I spoke to him, I thought, wow, this is doing really, really good. But I could tell there's some bitterness as I'm talking to him. I'm saying, okay, this seems like something's going on here. And as I pry into it, you can see that this man in his 60s is so bitter towards the evangelical church. Instead of staying in the church, pursuing unity, and trying to be a prophetic voice, also submitting to godly leadership, he has decided, I don't need the church. I'm gone from the church. I'm stepping outside of the church. Division is fine with me as long as I can do what I am passionate about. Unity, I say that to say that unity is not easy. It's not just diversity and unity. It's, it's, become a, it's become a cliche. It's become culturally relevant to where, oh, unity, diversity. But when you get into it, you recognize this is not easy. And we need something outside of ourselves to actually make it happen. Now, where is their hope? Where do we actually go to to say, what is the hope for us as a church to actually be unified and actually pursue unity in the midst of diversity? Well, we look no further than Jesus. We have to look at Jesus not only as the God and the King that is going to be lording over us to bring unity and oneness, but we also look to him as the example to follow. He is the faithful people. I said before, as I was kind of talking through the story of the Bible, coming all the way from Genesis 1 and 2 and going all the way up to Titus. Jesus was the faithful people that Israel could never be. God called them to actually be wrapped in sound doctrine and actually do good works and pursue unity, and they never did. They never did, but Jesus did. And that's why we come to him, and that's why we love him. And we read here in Mark 3, 1 through 6, it says, Again he entered the synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Jesus knows that the religious people have been consumed with worthless conversations about the law. Just like Paul is saying here. He's looking at religious leaders and he's saying, you have been consumed with worthless conversations about the law, and I know it because you're seeing a man with a withered hand, and he needs life. He needs healing. He needs someone to love him, and you care more about this worthless conversation about the law. This is what you're more consumed with. Where here I stand with the least of these, the people that we are called to love, the people that I brought you to myself. Jesus, the savior of the many is speaking to, coming back for Israel, is looking at them, saying, this is why you exist for this man right here. And you're looking at me. He knows their heart, saying, you're looking at me trying to accuse me because I want to heal a man and do a good work. I want to do a good work and love this man right here. And you're looking at me, trying to accuse me. And he's grieved. And he's brokenhearted over it, as we should be. And then it says in verse 6, The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. The people that Jesus came for. Jesus comes first to Israel and says, I've come back. Israel, I've come for you. I'm the king you've been longing for. In the intertestamental period, before the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's this longing in Israel. There's this longing in God's people for the king to come back and make things new. And Jesus shows up. He's looking at the religious leaders and saying, it's me. I'm the one. I'm the one that's come for you. The one you've longed for so much. I'm here with you. And this is the response that he gets. The response he gets is they went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him. How to destroy him. Jesus is grieved because the people that he came for. And now, Jesus looks at the church. And what I want us to think about is, are we grieving Jesus? Is Jesus looking at the church and saying, I am grieved? I'm grieved because hardness of heart. And you're allowing yourself in your homes And in your communities and in your neighborhoods to be sidetracked from the vision that I've given you. You're you're allowing yourself to argue and to bicker and, and to be set apart in different directions. And I'm so thankful for what Vince just did at the beginning of this service. Because you are getting it. You're starting to move towards unity and say, Okay, how can we as a unified church in Flagstaff, one big C church in Flagstaff, say we are about the gospel And we want to pray for one another and move towards actually loving our neighbor together. And it wasn't just good enough for Jesus to live at church, although he did. Jesus had to take the heresy, the division on himself, and be broken. What was dividing God's people— everything that was broken in god's people jesus says okay i'm going to show you how to live it and be faithful israel and then i'm going to take the heresy that doesn't belong to me on myself what is broken in the world i am clean and pure and i am whole and i am taking the brokenness of the world and the brokenness i see in the church jesus looks into the church he looks into your homes and i know if we search we say man there's division We see it. We see it in our own hearts. And Jesus says, I'm going to take that, even though I don't deserve it. I'm going to put it on myself, and I am going to be broken in half. I am going to be broken. And in my resurrection, I am going to bring unity and wholeness back to life with my resurrection. It says in Ephesians 1, 7 through 10, "...in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses." according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Hear this. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. Jesus' vision is unity. It's uniting The world is divided. We now have a broken relationship with the Lord. If you're not in Christ, we now have a broken world and relationships are severed. We have a broken idea of ourselves. We don't see ourselves as an image bearer. We're power hungry or we're insecure. And Jesus says, I am taking the heresy of division. I'm putting it on myself and I am birthing unity, newness of life. And now in Jesus, we can actually go to him and not be foolish and be wise. Because Jesus rose from the dead, there is now wisdom and treasure found in Jesus. If we don't want to be foolish as a church, we have to pursue Jesus. He has to be the treasure for us. He has to be the prize for us. He has to be what sits in front of us that we long for and we long to be with. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says this. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Jesus is now wisdom. He's united the church. He is wisdom. He gave us the example to follow. We must go to Jesus to find our place resting in him. And then from that, he resurrects us as a church to actually live the life that he called us To live. Now, what does this actually look like? I have the pleasure often of traveling around the world, and uh, I'm going to Ethiopia in October. I've been to Ethiopia a few times before that. And Ethiopia has an incredible story of unity. So in 1974, Ethiopia came under communist rule. And Christianity was outlawed, and the church in Ethiopia was thriving. They would actually, if you know the story in Acts, the Ethiopian church would actually trace their history back to the Ethiopian eunuch and say, hey, that's the foundation for our church. So there's been a thriving church in Ethiopia for a number of years. But in 1974, under communist rule, the church is suffering. The church is being persecuted. The church is outlawed, and the church is scattered. So there were nine churches that said, we need to unify together. We need to come together as a church, although it's not legal for us to do so. We'll be underground, and they created the Evangelical Church Fellowship of Ethiopia and said, let's come together and unify. I don't care if you're Lutheran. I don't care if you're Presbyterian. I don't care if you're Pentecostal. We will unify together on the gospel. Let's come together on the gospel and say, Jesus is is in all and over all and through all and above all. Jesus is what matters. Let's unify together on this. And they said that they had unity and they had oneness in their suffering together. Because when they formed this, the government knew about it. Many of them were tortured. Many of them were persecuted. Many of them lost their lives. But they said there was such unity in the church during this time. And I've talked to leaders that lived through it. That's only 1974. I sit down with leaders that have lived through it. So there was such unity and beauty in the church. We suffered, yes, but God brought us together, and the church was one, and it was whole, and we were so grateful for it. And still now, there's 18 million people and thousands of churches that come underneath the Evangelical Church Fellowship of Ethiopia. But I just had a few uh, Ethiopian pastors at Redemption Arcadia a few weeks ago and they spoke a little bit and they said now we're starting to see because in 1991 communism fell and then they could rebuild their church they could uh, freedom of religion christianity wasn't outlawed anymore and they said now in 2016 we're starting to see division what was once so unified in the midst of suffering what was once so unified in the midst of torture and persecution What was once this oneness and wholeness in the midst of all this diversity, Lutherans, Pentecostals, Baptists coming together and saying, we want to unify for the gospel. We're starting to see division. We're starting to see division because we're getting comfortable. The hunger for Jesus is starting to crack, and they ask for prayer. So please pray for them, and just pray for our church too that there would be oneness, but we can see it. We can see God doing it around the world, and I know he can do it here in Flagstaff. Where there is division, God can bring it together and make it one. I want to end our time with this prayer for Jesus, just to show Jesus's passion and Jesus's love for unity and his heart for unity. He says in John 17, I do not ask for these only, But also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus is saying that when there's unity in the church, the world will look in and they will believe that Jesus is Lord. They will believe that Jesus has come from the Father. They will believe that Jesus reigns and lords over all things when they look into the church and they look at the rest of the world and see the news and say, everybody's divided, everybody's fighting, everybody's against one another, but this community, this community is one. This community is whole and there's no division. Jesus says, this is the way that people will know that I've come from you, that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent and loved them even before you loved me. Jesus loves you. And if you didn't know that, today is a great first day to know that Jesus loved you. He wants to adopt you into this community. He wants to bring wholeness to your life. And he wants to graft you. If you don't know Jesus, he wants to graft you into a community, a diverse community, a messy community, but a beautiful community where Jesus reigns, where Jesus is Lord. Let us pray for the Ethiopian church, and let us pray for this church, Redemption Flagstaff, that we will pursue wholeness and unity in the midst of a divided world. Church, I'm going to leave just a few minutes after I pray of reflection. Do this every week at Flagstaff. So after what you've received in the word, we take a moment and say, God, what are you saying to me? How are you moving in me? So I'm going to pray for us. Stay where you're at and take a moment to reflect. And then someone will come up in just a moment and continue on in the service. Pray with me. Father, I pray for redemption. Flagstaff, God, I pray that they may be one. One as you are one, you and them, them and you, perfectly one with no division. God, I pray that you would bless them and there would be wholeness. God, we thank you for your call to your church to be a faithful people here, to be a faithful people around the world. We remember the church in Ethiopia, our global neighbors that they may be one, God, where there's division in our homes, where there's division in our hearts, or where where there's quarreling and arguing. God, we pray that you would bring peace and unity. Jesus, we love you because you first loved us. Amen.